This podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground was Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. Three. There was a clear winner. This is the war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come for the whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Just another day in paradise, my brother. Just another day in paradise. Well, I got to tell you, uh, you are a rock star in my mama's house. My mama's maybe the biggest Hulk Hogan fan ever. And despite all of the uh, fun stuff I've done in podcasting, she thinks it's all silly bullshit. And then when I said, hey, mom, I, I got Hulk Hogan on the podcast this week. She couldn't wait to tell all of her friends. So uh, you made my mom think I was uh, kind of cool again. So thanks for that, Mr. Bishon. Hey, I'm over with everybody's mother. You don't know how disheartening it is for me to go to autograph signings or conventions or whatever and have guys that are, you know, 35 and 40 years old going, oh, man, my mom, she thought you were hot. <laughs> Great. <laughs> She's 70 now. Great. Hey, who's the game show host everybody says you resemble? John Davidson. Yeah. I heard that the other day and I was like, uh, I don't know who that is, mom. And she's like, no, you know who that is. And so she kept saying, oh, I know there's a guy, but I don't, I mean, I don't know. No, no, he, he was, he was big. I think in the seventies, maybe in the early eighties. And, and I think the only reason that people draw that parallel is because he had this giant head of hair that looked like a helmet. Uh, nothing moved. His hair never moved. So I think, I think that's what I came from. By the way, if, if you don't know who John Davidson is and you're listening to this, throw it in your Google machine, just hit images. And there is a people magazine here that fucking looks like your cousin. So I totally get it. Uh, it makes total sense to me. And hopefully you got our dusty roads episode. Of course, if you're curious what the hell we're talking about with Hulk Hogan, he was our third man. And we didn't really even plan on doing that. Uh, we just happened to be recording last week when Eric was in Florida for the big event they had at the hard rock down there that Hogan was doing with flair. And when I sort of freestyled that we needed our own Lois Shivani, our own little third man on the show, like Tony and I have, he said, stand by and put the one and only Hulk Hogan on the line to share some memories of dusty road. So it's a pretty big deal when the Hulkster makes a rare podcast appearance. And we were honored to have him last week. And that is available in the archives right now. Let's talk about why we're here. It's clash of the champions 23. It's one of the major shows that you were able to put on as soon as you sort of get a boost in power. It goes down on June 16th, 1993 at the scope in Norfolk, Virginia. It's fucking daytime, Eric. And sure was. Uh, <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about this, but first let's sort of set the stage. When did your rise to power happen relative to this show? You know, I, I actually went back because I knew we were going to talk about this and I tried to find the exact date and it's just not there anywhere. You know, it, it would have been the best I can pin it down was probably a month, maybe six weeks before. So it was, it was relatively short. You know, and I looked for when Watts was fired. I was trying to find out exactly when Jim Ross left. I was looking for all of the things because 93 was a fucked up year. I mean, you know, we're talking about the middle of the year here in June, 
But, you know, to put what I'm sure is going to be a grilling in context, you know, I think you, we, all of us, if we're going to talk about this, you kind of have to go back and look at all of the things that led up to this particular pay-per-view. And it was a bad year. 93 was a tough year. It was a good year for me because I got, you know, I got a great promotion and a couple extra bucks. But it, it was a tough year for WCW. We were coming off the Watts debacle. You know, all of the things that he did prior to, you know, the comments that he made that got him fired, you know, pulling the, the, the mats away from the rings and barring all the moves off the top rope and all of the throwback shit that he thought was going to be, you know, turn was going to turn the company around. The horrible morale, not only within WCW, but all around Turner with regard to WCW. And the politics were still rampant, um, probably even more so after I got the nod. I think people were probably shell-shocked, you know, over the, the Bill Watts thing. Um, and then probably me getting the nod as executive producer was a double whammy. And there was still a lot of politics going on. Ole Anderson was politicking his ass off, you know, trying to get as much control as he was. Dusty Rhodes was in the middle of it all. You know, it, it, it was a mess, you know, going into this particular pay-per-view. So there you go. That's where we're going to start. Let me ask you this, you know, let's, let's set the stage before we get into clash the champions. Cause I don't know when we'll talk about this again. And I've always had a couple of different questions and I'm sure we'll, we'll cover this long form sometime, but when you are, cause you know, the word comes out that there is a vacancy and there is an opportunity for someone to step up into a new position. Two things I've always wondered about this. Do you know what the salary for that position is before you apply, or do you sort of interview for the job and then figure out the money after the fact with a separate negotiation? No, I didn't. I, I didn't do it for the money. I, it, no, it wasn't. You know, they didn't say, okay, we're going to hire an executive producer and we're going to pay this person $150,000 a year, which I think is what it paid. Um, they, no, that didn't happen. What happened after the Bill Watts disaster? And, and again, I can't overemphasize or overstate the negative impact that had on the Turner organization and how close WCW came to just going away. Right. I mean, the only guy that wanted WCW around was Ted Turner and he was inflamed over that situation. And by that point, you know, they had tried so many things to, tr to, to try to get WCW to work and none of them did. They, 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 they were at their wits end and Bill Shaw is the one that made the announcement after they let um, Bill Watts go. He, he had a company wide meeting and he made it really clear. I mean, he was, Bill was a very, he was a head of human resources. He was a VP of human resources for Turner corporate, right? So he wasn't a ham fisted, you know, heavy hitting type of guy. He was a very eloquent, soft-spoken guy, but he was, he was all business too. And he came down and he was hot. And he made it clear, you know, that if WCW was going to survive what they just went through, it was no longer going to be a wrestling company. It was going to operate like a television company because Turner Broadcasting was first and foremost a television company. And as such, they are going to look for someone to come in and control the television property and make the television side of WCW a priority. Because up until that point, it had been run by wrestlers right. or people that were, you know, other than Jim Hurd, which was, you know, that was a, an outlier, 
not sure what went into that decision, but for the most part, their recent experience, you know, with having wrestlers come in and former wrestlers come in and run a wrestling company, it was a square peg in a round hole at Turner Broadcasting. It didn't fit. So Bill Shaw made the announcement. That's how I heard about it, like everybody else. And I, I was on my way out the door. I had because I hated working for Bill Watts. I I was certain that my job was a dead end. Jim Ross and I were not really on great terms. I didn't see myself going anywhere within WCW. And while all of you know the things that were going on with Watts, you know, for the year prior to him getting fired, it was miserable for me. And I started exploring um, selling television shows, you know, outside of WCW. And was having pretty good success. I actually sold a show to to Fox, uh, the Fox Kids Network, back when they had that. They had a Saturday morning kids block on the Fox Network, and literally sold a show to Fox. And I, you know, the process in in doing that made me really. Um, it made me decide that you know if I was going to have a future in broadcasting and television, it wasn't going to be a WCW. So I was on my way out the door until they fired Bill Watts. And when I heard that, I thought, well. Held it. I'm going to throw my name in a hat and see what happens. I've got nothing to lose. If I don't get it, I'm going to leave anyway. So that's that's how that went down. And the money wasn't even a consideration for me. Wow, man, I learned a lot right there. Um, thanks for you. Ask me a question, you're going to get an answer. <laughs> so let me ask you this, you know, and then we'll move on. When you're when you're applying for the job, do you just have a one-on-one interview? Are there multiple interviews? Do you sit in front of a board and sort of? you know, in front of a firing squad, answering questions. What is that process? I emailed, uh, Bill Shaw. He, he made it clear that if, if anybody felt like they wanted to step up and, and, and take a run at that position, uh, send him an email. I did. Well, and let me make sure I got this right. You sent an email in 93. I believe I did. Maybe not. Maybe you wrote Maybe a letter. Just, Maybe you wrote a memo or something. Memo, called call the secretary, whatever. You typed some but shit. I got you. I, I, made, I made an appointment to, to, to see Bill. Right. And and I you know I got that first meeting. I didn't expect to get it. You know, Bill had made it clear in that first meeting that they were interviewing people from outside the company. Um, and my, my instinct or my gut uh, was that um, – they were probably more inclined to go outside of the company. I think they felt that they needed a completely fresh perspective because, again, they had been hiring people from within the wrestling community, again, with the exception of Jim Hurd. And Kip Fry was a temper. He was a stopgap. They, they just put him in that position until they found somebody else. Um, he was never intended to be there for any length of time. But you, I, I think they had tried, you know, people from within the wrestling community enough to come to the conclusion that if they were going to save the company and put the emphasis on a television property, that they were going to interview people from outside the company. And I know that they were interviewing people from New York. I don't know who it was. They didn't ever tell me who it was, but they were interviewing executive producers, people with a resume in that regard, um, from outside of Turner. That's all I knew. So I, you know, I, I made the appointment, however I did it by email, carrier, fucking pigeon, you know, phone call, whatever. And, and got my first meeting. So once you're, you know, put in charge and you sort of have, Hey, this big clash of the champions is four to six weeks out. You know, what are you trying to gear up and prepare for differently than maybe you had been, or or like what sort of changes, I guess, were you trying to make in order for this show to go the way you wanted it to? Well, again, 
you know, to put everything in its proper perspective. When I was made executive producer, I I had no real control over creating. I, I had I had some influence. Certainly, I had influence and participation with wrestling operations, but I didn't, I, I didn't report to wrestling operations, nor did they report to me. Wrestling operations was a separate division within WCW. It was its own entity. Television production was its own entity. That's the way Bill Shaw wanted it set up. So really Bob Dew, um, who is the executive vice president of WCW at the time oversaw uh, wrestling operations and all of the other, you know, whether it's the accounting, you know, the dotted line accounting division, the marketing, licensing, you know, touring, that whole side of the business reported to Bob Dew. The only thing, not to say the only thing, because it was the most important thing at that time, but what reported up to me was the entire television side of the business, the production side. So my emphasis and my focus to answer your question specifically was on what the show looked like, right. what it felt like, what was the pacing of the show? How did we want to like the show? You know, what, what was the format of the show? Those are the types of things that initially at least I was most focused on and involved with what, what went on inside of the ring was not my necessarily my, um, that wasn't my area. So let me ask you this though, in regards to the actual show itself and, and what you're trying to put together in your new role, was there something that just really bothered you about the way WCW had been presented before? Like you were to say, man, if I just had control of this, I can't wait to change what the thing that bothered me the most, there were, there were probably two or three things that, that were equally as distressing to me. One, as we all know, um, was the fact that WCW had such a regional feel to it. The, the, the WCW was, you know, the genesis of WCW was the NWA, which was a southeastern regional territory. And there was a lot of hangover effect there from announcing to the style of wrestling to finishes to just the people, you know, the roster where so many of them were from that NWA era, particularly Georgia, on this, the on this you know, pay-per-view. Yeah. We'll see, see a lot of that. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So Georgia, Carolina, Southern guys, and, and you felt maybe there was too much of that and you wanted to, uh, you know, have something that didn't necessarily feel like wrestling. No, it, it wasn't that. And I know that sounds like I'm, you know, it sounds derisive, like I'm making fun of the South and I certainly am not, you know, but the, what was clear to me and what was part of the, the agenda that was made clear to me is we had to attract national advertisers. We could not be perceived as a regional company any longer, you know, to, and part of it was inherent, you know, TBS was perceived as a regional Southern network, even at that time. Even though they were national, most people thought of TBS and they thought of Atlanta Braves and Andy Mayberry, right? <laughs> you know, because that's what it was built upon. So that stigma or that association was prevalent not only in WCW but across the board, and that was one of the things that was made clear to me that I had to change. So in in changing that, it's one of the reasons on, on this particular pay, or excuse me on this clash, I brought in Michael Buffer. Why did I bring in Michael Buffer? Because he had such a high profile in major sporting events beyond wrestling and beyond the Southern traditional kind of NWA-esque, TBS-esque 
uh, footprint. It was a way to kind of change the perception. You know, that was one thing I did. You know, the other thing that was really bothering me, and again, this was a result of a lot of bad management, you know, Bill Watts and prior to Bill Watts, um, is we couldn't attract an audience. I mean, we had a hard time giving tickets away. And as such, you know, everybody, that's what Bill Watts, you know, well, we'll just turn down all the lights. We'll go back to the way wrestling was produced back in 1960 in a television soundstage, you know, or studio where the only light was a spotlight in the middle of the ring, like back in the old, you know, Gillette boxing days from 1940. That was his, his solution to the lack of crowd. Mine was the opposite of that. I wanted to find ways to turn up the lights, to, to create the glitz so that we look like a higher production value product property to advertisers and to, and to a broader audience. So those were the things I focused on the perception because of some of the talent, even if it's peripheral talent, like announcers. Um, and we all know the, the situation with Jim Ross and all that, but you know, the announcers, which fell under my purview as an executive producer, um, the lighting, the look of the show. And, and again, you know, by in particular on this clash of the champions, Michael Buffer. So you, you're the person who put together the Michael Buffer deal. Yes. How does that come to be? Cause at the time, and, and this seems like something that a lot of people are going to gloss over, but he was a really fucking big deal. I mean, he added a lot of legitimacy because by this point he was sort of the guy for boxing. And if he was calling your boxing event, it meant the difference of it's a big deal and it's on pay-per-view or it's Thursday night fights on ESPN. And so you work a deal to get him in. What's that process look like? I reached out to his agent and I believe his brother was managing him at the time. I don't remember how I found his brother or his agent, if I'm wrong, but I reached out to his agent and just started, started the conversation and introduced myself. And, you know, he, he clearly knew who we were and what we were. Mike, Michael was a very smart guy. He was a wrestling fan. It wasn't like I brought him in cold. Um, so he, he was well aware of who we were. And I think the fact that we were Turner broadcasting, uh, certainly was appealing to him. Michael was a very easy guy to do business with. And he, he was, he was just a class act. Well, let's talk a little bit about that day. Um, Clash of the Champions 23, of course, is what we're talking about. And we've always heard that there's a production meeting before a big show like this. Is this the first time you have a big production meeting with everybody before an event like this? And if so, did you do it the day of, the day before? And what were you trying to do differently in your production meetings compared to the ones you had attended prior to this? I didn't really attend production meetings prior to this. Okay. I mean, I, I got my assignment, you know, prior to being made executive producer, uh, I had very little to do with live broadcasts. I was doing some of the backstage stuff, but I was handed my assignments either by Jim Ross or Tony Schiavone and walked through what I was going to do, you know, on the format and it was cut and dry. There was no real production meeting that I was ever really involved with. Um, so I, I don't know what they were like. By virtue of the fact I wasn't there. Um, in this particular case, there was a production meeting. I met more with the production side of, of, of the company. You know, we knew what the matches were. You know, I think Oli was booking then. Dusty was probably involved at the time. You know, we knew what the matches were. Um, we knew what the finishes were. And then myself in the production side of the equation, you know, walked through the show 
step-by-step day of, not the day before, uh, day of, and there we went. We, we proceeded to produce the show. Do you remember in particular, there being anybody that you were working with in production who was really great or really awful? There were a lot of great, you know, no, nobody was awful. You know, I, I think if there was one real distinct disadvantage, and this is oftentimes lost on people, uh, particularly when people c- compare WCW production to WWF production, not only at that time, but even during the middle of the Monday Night Wars, even when we were winning, we were we were we had a lot of advantages. I'm not going to suggest we didn't, but we had some very distinct disadvantages, and one of the distinct disadvantages that we had every time that we did anything live is we had no real control over our production crew. Now we had our key production people, Craig Leathers, David Crockett. Um, there were a number of others, Neil Pruitt, you know, there were, there was a, there was a host of guys that were really good and worked their guts out and were talented. Um, but there was also a large part of our crew that we didn't know, you know, we got freelancers from TBS sports. We got the people that weren't busy doing baseball or college football or golf or the Goodwill games or whatever else they were doing. So there were times when we would have handheld cameramen, for example, you know, assigned on the corners. And by the way, that's a really difficult job. If you don't know, if you don't have a lot of experience shooting wrestling and you don't know how to anticipate what's going to happen in the ring, you're going to be a heartbeat and a half away behind almost the entire show. And you're going to miss a lot of shit. And that was a that was a consistent problem, just because of the way Turner Broadcasting was set up. We were I don't want to say forced, but yeah, forced to use TBS Sports production people. They weren't WCW employees for the most part. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Yeah, I don't know that I ever knew that, so... Thanks for dropping knowledge. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the buildup to get to this show. Of course, famously Ric Flair is back in the company, but he had part of his agreement to come back and and get out of his WWF deal is that he couldn't wrestle on TV. So the rumor and innuendo would be that you guys developed a flair for the gold. And that was essentially a Ric Flair talk show 
where you could sort of have him on TV and still trot him out there and create some interest and continue some storylines or create some storylines, but he couldn't actually take part from a wrestling standpoint. This is going to be the show where he's back. What was your take on flair for the gold? Did you inherit it? Did you create it? Talk us through how we got to this point with Ric Flair. That was a dusty Rhodes creation. Um, that was Dusty's vision. And we talked about that last week uh, a little bit. We touched on it because th- that's where Fifi the maid uh, stepped into the picture. And as we know now, Fifi the maid, Lady Barlow, is Rick's fiance. So um, there you go. But that was Dusty's vision uh, to create that talk show. And, you know, one of the things that Dusty always wanted to, and I know we talked about him last week, but it's germane to this question. You know, Dusty really wanted to up-level the, uh, although that word didn't exist back then, really wanted to up-level or upgrade the, the production value so that it had more of a, a Hollywood feel to it. You know, Dusty really wanted, in many respects, not just with the flair for the gold segment, but I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of the characters that, that Dusty liked or storylines had that kind of Hollywood feel to it. Um, and flair for the gold was his. That was that was his idea. He was he was the booker. He he. I'm not sure if Oli was still there at that point or not, but that was really Dusty's creation. Let's talk a little bit about the Jr. situation that you had sort of alluded to. Um, he is essentially trying to pull off an angle here uh, where he's using his radio show in Atlanta as a platform to create some controversy and get himself into a better opportunity. So allegedly, even before he relieved, he was able to be relieved of his duties and, and released from his contract from WCW, he got Vince McMahon to come on his WSB radio show. And he announced that he was joining the broadcast team there with Vince McMahon. Uh, he would join, uh, Bobby Heenan and Shawn Michaels as guests on a WrestleMania preview show that would essentially be sponsored by WCW. This is some crazy next level silliness. I need you to sort of talk me through politically what was happening when you guys find out about this, maybe what led to it. And I know you're not involved necessarily at that level, but you're in the office and you had to hear, Oh, you're not going to believe what Ross is trying to do. Yeah. The, you know, the situation with, with Jim was complex you know, Bill Shaw, first of all, Jim, you know, and we're, we're very close friends to this day, but at that time, not so much. And at that time, Jim, when, when the Bill Watts shit hit the fan, Jim Ross got splattered with a lot of it. He was severe collateral damage because of his proximity to Bill. I mean, he was Bill Watts's guy. He, I mean, he, he campaigned for Bill. He was, he was a very loyal Bill Watts guy. So given the nature of Bill Watts's departure, there was not a lot of love for Jim Ross at the corporate level, let alone in the WCW level, because Bill alienated a lot of people, you know, within the office, you know, within the locker room, everywhere else. He, he was a toxic individual. And, and Bill, excuse me, Jim got hit with a lot of that. Bill Shaw had made the decision in, in part because of me 
because I made it clear to Bill Shaw that I didn't want Jim Ross in a in a broadcast position. There was a couple reasons for it. His his southern vibe wasn't the only thing. Um, his attitude was part of it. Um, I didn't believe that Jim Ross would be able to work underneath me. I didn't think it was a healthy situation. No, having given the fact that he was my boss and he had such close proximity to, you know, the guy that was running the company to, to take that kind of a demotion in Jim's mind, I knew it was going to be hard on him. And I knew that he was going to have a bad attitude about it. It would take him a long time to overcome it. I didn't really want to deal with that. So between the fact, you know, Jim Ross had been visually such a prominent part of the WCW brand, um, and in my opinion, was a part of the problem that we needed to overcome. That was one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it was just his piss poor attitude at the time. Uh, you know, I told Bill Shaw that I just didn't think there was a place for him in television. I didn't think we could overcome both of those challenges. Bill Shaw made the decision rather than to fire him because nobody wanted to fire Bill right. or excuse me, Jim initially right. was to move him into syndication. And, he, and, and I think, you know, what I recall uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's been a while and there's not a lot of great detail there, but the conversations I had with Shaw was that let's, let's move him out of the equation for a while. And if his attitude comes around and things get healthy and we get this ship, you know, on the right course, even a little bit, then we can bring him back. That was the decision that was made internally. Jim didn't want to, I mean, Jim took that as an even further demotion. And that's when things started really falling apart. And I think that's when Jim probably decided to pull the stunt that he's pulled because he, he, he wanted to get fired. And I was telling Bill Shaw, if he wants to go, let him go. There's no harm in letting him go. Nothing bad is going to happen. And that was not – no disrespect meant to Jim, especially not now. But in my opinion then, you know, I, I was not concerned about Jim Ross going to WWF. I, I, I just didn't care. I, I encourage if he, who wants a guy that's miserable. Right. Who wants a guy that's sh that that hates everybody, is pissed off at everybody, shows up with a bad attitude, particularly given any everything that had gone on for about eighteen months leading up to that point. Who wants that? So I encourage Bill Shaw to go, and I think the stunt that that Ross pulled was the final straw, and it made the decision very easy for Bill Shaw. Wow. Man, we're, we're cooking with gas today. You know, I, I can't wait for us to talk more about this Jim Ross thing, but I feel like we've got to shift gears, at least for now. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the opportunity that we have here to put on clash of the champions, because one of the things on the way that has to sort of derail some of the plans creatively is the Tully Blanchard situation where Blanchard was allegedly on his way back in, but then when he finds out what the money offer is relative to other performers like a Johnny B bad or a Jim Neidhart and even Tom Zink, he decides not to come back in. And I know you weren't involved in creative, but this had to be sort of the talk of the company, at least for a week or two that Tully's out and Paul Roma is in, you know, I know what it would seem that way, but I don't think anybody really thought Tully Blanchard coming back was that big of a deal. It may have been to a small group of people that, you know, had worked with Tully. And again, Oli, Dusty to a large degree, you know, some of the office people that came over, you know, with the NWA, you know, David Crockett, um, uh, God, what was his brother's name? 
can't remember his brother's name. He was a cameraman for us. I'll think of it. Um, there, you know, there were there was a there was a core group of people that you know still remember Tully and 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 his heyday that thought that was a really big deal. I for one didn't give two shits. Nothing against Tully Blanchard, but I I didn't have he didn't have that same impact on me. And quite frankly, I don't rec- you know I just don't remember people going, oh my god, Tully's not coming in. That's a big damn deal. It really wasn't. It was I'm sure it was a problem for, you know booking wise, but you know if you look back at WCW, you know at that point and certainly in the a year year and a half leading up to that point, having a last minute substitution like that was certainly not unusual and therefore not a big deal. Well, I didn't expect that answer from you, but I'm glad you were candid with us. I can't help but ask, what did you think of Roma as a horseman then? I didn't, I didn't get it. (laughs) I didn't get it. And here we go. Once again, I'm going to get blasted for this. I didn't grow up with the four horsemen. When the four horsemen were hot, I wasn't watching the NWA. I just, I, I wasn't watching the product at that point. So it didn't have that impact on me, the four horsemen that it had on, you know, 99% of the people I was working with in the audience that I was now an executive producer for. I didn't appreciate it. It's not that I didn't like it. It's just, it is something I didn't grow up with. So it's hard to have the same relationship with a legacy that you're not familiar with. You know, I took, I took everybody's word for the fact that, you know, it was a very important thing. I certainly knew who Ric Flair was, but, you know, to me, it just didn't really – it didn't register the way it did with everybody else. But what did register is that Paul Roma just didn't look like he fit. Right. You know, that was that was clearly a WWE – you know, an ex-WWF guy. Let's bring him in. We've got an opportunity. You know, maybe it'll move the needle here in, in WCW. Uh, I don't know whose decision it was, if it was Dusty's or Ole's, but the decision was made. But I remember looking at him and I went, eh, he's my size. He's built better. But, you know, I, in, in stature, when I looked at him and Rick and in Arn especially, you know, I just, it just it didn't, I don't know. And part of it probably was I really wasn't familiar with Paul Roma in WWF. So it didn't even have the, you know, ex-WWF kind of patina that it had for some people. To me, it just, yeah, who's this guy? You did say that you're not really in charge of the creative, but you are in charge of the production aspect, I assume that you would have to approve budgets and whatnot for production. Is that fair to say? Yeah. It's in the observer. And I know that, you know, the creation of it predated you, but do you remember hearing that there was a number somewhere in the range of $35,000 to create that piece of shit set? Because that's what ran in the observer. I, and there's no way I could remember that. There's just, I, there's just no way I can remember a $35,000. If, if it was that just because it's in the observer clearly doesn't mean it was true. <laughs> Number one, it, it, it could be just, you know, Dave Meltzer sitting in a room, seeing a dot to the left and a dot to the right and de- decided to connect those dots and have a three dimensional picture. Um, I have no idea what the budget for that was. Uh, but again, you know, if it was $35,000, you know, and you can refer to it as a piece of shit set if you want, but it was, you know, it was designed to look, it, it wasn't designed to convince people we were in a studio and right. a soundstage. Right. It was a, it was a stage that had to travel. It had to be picked up, dragged across the country, you know, in a truck, you know, assembled, disassembled and shipped down the road again. So it had to be modular and it had to look halfway decent. We had to be able to light it. 
and it had to serve its purpose. And if it did that for $35,000 or $45,000, it's not a bad price, given the fact that we used it over and over and over again. So its per episode cost as a line item was probably around $2,000 know, an episode, which would make it a rounding error. I love that you were able to break that down for us. So, I mean, you broke it down almost as easy as Shockmaster did that wall. So let's talk yeah. about, uh, Jesse Ventura because he's, uh, he's around in this era and he's talking about Jim Ross, but he's doing it in code. And he says stuff like there's nothing uglier than a fat man and a toga, you know, is does somebody direct Jesse to take a stab at Jr. or is this just Jesse having fun? No, it's Je- it's Jesse and Jesse and Jr. didn't get along. So I think once you know Jr. was gone, and um, no longer you know nobody had to be you know tread lightly around Jr. and and Jesse I'm sure knew. Um, I can't put myself in Jesse's head, nor would I want to, but if I could, um, I'm guessing that Jesse didn't really, there was no love lost between the two of them. He decided, you know, in his heel character, it was perfectly permissible, you know, to, to take some shots. I'm going to step out on a limb here and, and, and try to veer out of your lane for a minute, because I don't know when we'd have a chance to talk about this again, but in mid April on our way to this clash of the champions, I'm, I'm counting it, even though it's two months prior, you guys ran Madison square garden which is really the first time the WCW has ever done this before, but it seems snake bit from the jump. There's only 3,500 in the people in the crowd, 2,900 of those have paid a total gate of only $47,000. And Ric Flair isn't there because his plane is legitimately canceled. Uh, there was some sort of, um, problem with the engine at once they took off. So they turned back around and went to Charlotte. So the crowd that did show a handful of them there are, are really not happy and chanting. We want flare and refund. I know this is probably not anything that's in your lane, but do you remember people talking about this show before it happened? And after it happened as being a fairly big deal, it feels like a big deal to run Madison square garden. Well, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't. You know, the idea has, you know, the prevailing logic at that time, and it was one of the reasons I had a hard time with Bob Dew, um, and one of the reasons why he ultimately was relieved of his duties, um, was they believed that they could rebuild the live event side of the company by making big moves without creating a product that anybody wanted to see. And that was a perfect example. Well, all we need to do is go to Madison Square Garden. Well, the, the stuff you're putting on television, nobody gives a shit about. That was my position. And I said this over and over and over every time I had an opportunity. And I didn't have that opportunity back in April. I don't think I did. But subsequent to that, you know, one of the reasons that I was always at, in a confrontation with Bob and a guy by the name of Don Sandifer, who was really the guy in operations that reported to Bob that oversaw that decision was, Oh, all we need to do is, you know, go to bigger arenas. Well, it didn't work. And especially going to New York because the prevailing logic was if you can make it in New York city, if you can play, you know, Madison square garden, then everything's going to change. I don't know where the fuck that came from. Or, or, or how that logic ever, you know, got lodged in anybody's skulls. But that was really something that, that was consistent. 
And it led to a lot of really bad decisions, including that one. Why would you – if you couldn't put people in a 5,000-seat in arena in Anderson, South Carolina, which was really your hometown, what in the fuck would make you think that you're going to go to Madison Square Garden with or without Ric Flair? Right. It's just – it was a dumb idea. It really was. And it was. It was stupid. It was stupid. It was the same kind of logic – and I may have said this before, stop me because I don't want to be redundant. But one of the one of the things that was very consistent in 93 and 94, because the the the, the live event side of the business was really dragging WCW down. I mean, it was one of the biggest, you know, it was like, you know, an open carotid artery. You know, it, we weren't bleeding a little, we were bleeding out, and and primarily because of you know live events. And the, the again, the logic was well. Listen, here's how we're going to fix that. You know, we're only doing 150 events a year, so what we're going to do is we're going to up that to 185. Well, if you're losing money every time you go out the door, what sense does it make to go out the door more often? How is that going to fix anything? But that's that was part of that, you know, psychology, if you want to call it that. Man, it's almost like. I don't even know how these people were in business. Let's talk about the production side again. You know, it, this is going to be cut and dry here. Were you in charge of things when Vader power bombed Mick Foley on the concrete, or is that right before you took over? Well, you'd have to tell me when did that happen? It, it, it happened on, um, April 17th, I believe. And, and it, it played on TV like a week later, April 24th. It seems like you, if you were there, you would remember because this, well, I was, I was, I was in the company sure, and I, and I remember it happened. You asked me if I was in control or if I was in charge and, and I certainly was not in charge of the wrestling side of it, the booking of it, the, the match, laying out the match, deciding the finish or being involved in who did what during the course of that match that I can guarantee you I wasn't in charge of or involved in, in any way. Um, but I can't. Let me pinpoint ask you, whether I was an executive producer by that point or not. Let me ask you this. You guys are going to follow that up with the whole lost in Cleveland shit. Was that something that was on your watch and you're like, Hey, here's what we're going to not necessarily. Here's what we're going to do, but here's how we're going to shoot this. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's exactly the way it would have went down. Here's what, you know, creative at that point, Oli and or dusty, um, would have said, here's what we're going to do. It would come over to me. And my job was then to execute it as best, as best we could. One of the, the things that Meltzer sort of freestyled in the observer is that script writers were starting to write some of the interviews for the guys and there would be more cute puns and less quote, I hate your guts. And here's why interviews and Meltzer. And, and, and where, and where did Meltzer get it? So Meltzer had a fucking crystal ball or he was some other kind of psychic that was able to get inside of my head and, and be able to determine why I hired those script writers. And he was, he's so fucking good. He's such an amazing intuitive powerhouse. He was able to get inside the heads of the writers and know what they were going to write before they fucking wrote it. There's your guy. There's your buddy. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I love doing this show with you. Let me ask though, you, you admitted right there. You did bring in script writers. What, yeah, but you didn't ask why. Do you want to know why I brought him in? Well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say he gave you credit for this. He says just a hunch, but that would seem to be a sign of Eric's Eric Bischoff's power as opposed to dusty Rhodes or early Anderson. So what he's freestyling about whose idea it is, is yours. But I do want to hear why you thought the script writers were necessary and what you try, what you wanted to overcome or change about the way those promos had been done prior to this. Okay. And, and I'm going to go there because this is a really important thing, but when, when, and when people are listening to this, I want them to rewind and listen to the way you set up that question. And by explaining to me how Dave Meltzer freestyled and then went on to explain that these writers we're going to write this, the promos for the talent, which, by the way, that wasn't the only thing they were going to write. But they were going to write the promos for the talent and make them more comedic. And then, well, well, that must be because Eric Bischoff's you know, getting more power, so it's probably his influence. The way that was set up is one of the reasons I end up going off on shit like this. Because that, to me, is reflects the lack of credibility in the kind of garbage that Meltzer wrote then – and I'm assuming, hopefully he doesn't to this day, but if he does, that's what pisses me off about this kind of stuff. Now, oh, God damn it, Conrad. <laughs> damn it. I love this. Did you see? Oh. Okay, hold on. <sighs> okay. Get some of that Settle. scotch out, buddy. You'll be okay. Settle down. Now, the reason I brought in scriptwriters. It's because I knew we were going to be going into Disney MGM. I knew Dusty single-handedly wasn't going to be able to format and produce for, the, the, the formats that we would need to execute 13 weeks of television at one time. I knew as an executive producer, a young one, but I knew intuitively that if we were going to produce our shows and have some consistency and and be able to communicate to all of the people on the production side of the of the business what was going to happen so that they could do their jobs because that was one of the big challenges when I took over as executive producer the right hand never knew what the left hand was doing right wrestling operations the guys that were in booking the olies you know and dusty and others you know they would they would come up with their ideas and they would do a halfway decent job communicating it but a lot of times the the production side of it had no idea and, 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 and as a result, things ended up looking like shit 90% of the time. Or if they did find out about something, they found out at the last minute and they didn't have time to prepare. That was one of the things I was trying to overcome. And I saw that as an announcer because before I was given that job as executive producer, I was one of the announcers who was on the receiving end of that kind of chaos. It's one of the things that I saw right away and went, okay, that we've got to fix that. What's the best way to do that? 
prepare formats. It wasn't Dusty's strength. Dusty was a visionary. Dusty was exceedingly creative and, and could really communicate ideas really well one-on-one. But when it came time to laying all this stuff out to 35 or 40 other people who were in charge of executing it, 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 a lot of shit got, you know, it, it fell through the cracks. So the writers I hired to really sit with Dusty and not try to be creative. I didn't hire these writers to try to be funny like Dave Meltzer purported I was doing because somehow he had that ability to get inside of my head. Um that wasn't why we hired them. We hired them because I knew that they could create the structure. So if Dusty said, okay, I've, here's my story. I'm, first week, this is going to happen. The second week, this is going to happen. The third week, this is going to happen. I wanted the writers to be able to take his vision and break it down into pieces and articulate it in a format so that the rest of us who were in charge of producing it could halfway do a decent job. That's why we hired writers. They understood format. Dusty understood wrestling. I was trying to make a marriage there. Well, there's trying to, uh, there's an attempt to try to have a marriage or so it seems with Sylvester Stallone. For some reason, you guys are able to land this and I got to think you're involved in this somehow. He does an interview in late May and, uh, sporting the WCW cap and Jesse even references it on this show. How did this Sylvester Stallone endorsement come to be? Through Jesse and Barry Bloom. Wow. Uh, Barry Bloom represented Jesse. Um, that was how I first met Barry and I think Sylvester Stallone was doing a movie. I can't remember. It was kind of like a RoboCop type of movie. I can't remember the title of it. Judge Dredd maybe. Yeah, I think it was. He was on location doing Judge Dredd. Uh, Jesse, you know, was, was tight with Stallone. Barry had access to Stallone and it, it, the opportunity became available because it really all it was was an opportunity for us to get a recognized Hollywood star, mainstream star, somebody from outside of the TBS footprint uh, on our show, you know, to wear a WCW logo and endorse us while promoting his movie. Not, not an unusual thing, actually. Um, happens all the time. But for us at that time, it was, it was a pretty big deal. Super big deal because, and I think, you know, history sort of, uh, you know, time marches on, but Sylvester Stallone was in this era, arguably one of the two or three biggest movie stars in the fucking world. Was that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really cool deal. Now who's not the biggest star in the world is, uh, Shane Douglas who has, uh, finished up and he's out of here. And Meltzer would even write that the details are sketchy as to why I left, but it's no doubt money. Do you recall, you know, any sort of reaction one way or another from the office or did anybody give a shit when Shane left? I know I'm asking it that way and framing it that way because you're not involved in creative, but from a production standpoint, Douglas leaving change anything. No, Douglas being there wasn't really that significant. So him leaving there certainly wasn't either. All right. That's, that's not a knock. No, he, he, he may not have been, you know, that important to WCW because he had heat with people there and he wasn't used in a way that would make him important. It's not a knock on Shane. It sounds like it is. I don't mean it to be, but he wasn't a big factor. He wasn't a principal player in anything that was going on at the time. So therefore him leaving wouldn't have been a big deal. 
there's also, you know, the rumors are always in the observer. There's a rumor that uh, WCW was trying to bring in Jim Helwig here for pay-per-views, the ultimate warrior. Did you even hear a whisper of his name in this era back in the day? No, absolutely not. Let's talk about the week of clash of the champions. Uh, It's reported in the observer as of press time, WCW champ, big van Vader was hospitalized somewhere in the Ozarks area. Uh, Vader's back went out in a match on Saturday night against Davey boy Smith. And he suffered temporary loss of feeling, which was originally feared as being quite serious since he was initially paralyzed. It was diagnosed as a pinched nerve in his back. Vader was immobile for two days and swelled heavily and had to be taken to Louisiana state university trauma center. But by press time was back home. As strange as this sounds, he's expected to work clash of the champions, which takes place before you're reading this. Do you recall there being a last minute scare with Vader and what impact that may have had on the show. Hard to say what impact it may have had on the show. I, again, you know, I, I'm sure from a creative point of view, people were scrambling, trying to figure out plan B, right. But plan, you know, coming up with a plan B in WCW at that point, you know, they'd had a couple of years of getting pretty good at that because it was kind of common. It was man. It wasn't managed that well. So it wasn't unusual. I do remember it. You know, Vader was, you know, Vader was a phenomenal athlete and I I was never a fan of him on on a personal level. He was always a bully. He was always kind of a prick to be around backstage. Uh, he was uncooperative in, in just about every way. Um, just, uh, you know, in one moment he, you know, he's an intimidating bully and the next minute he's, you know, a crying little puppy. And it's just, I didn't like working with him. But, you know, the other thing about Vader is he was an amazing performer. As a big man, he would do shit that was amazing. I mean, he was a phenomenal athlete. There's no taking that away from him. Um, But he got hurt a lot. And it was hard sometimes to tell what was real and what wasn't with Vader because he was a little bit of a – he would work the situation to his benefit if he felt like he needed to. He was very tough to do business with. And you never knew for sure if he was bullshitting it or if it was real. Let's get to the clash of the champions. You guys draw 6,000 fans here for a gate of around $20,000. It gets a 2.6 rating on TBS at the time, you know, ratings are important, but they're not nearly what they would be in the Monday night wars. Did you remember, would you guys consider that a disappointment? Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, when the goal with a clash, you know, if you could get into that 3.5, four, four cat, if you could hit a four, you're a, you're a hero. If you could get into a 3.5, yeah, that's pretty damn good. But a 2.6 or a 2.5, whatever it was, that was considered pretty miserable. So when that rating comes out, I mean, obviously you're not in charge of creative. You're not shouldering any of the blame for that. Right. I mean, you're just there to make whatever they've got booked look good. There's no, there's no pressure on you besides making sure everything looks good. Right. Well, there was indirectly, there was pressure, pressure on all of us. I mean, I couldn't take single-handedly responsibility for the performance of a show, but you know, as a part of the team, you know, we were all in it together. Um, we were all disappointed together, but, but I also want to point out because of where we had come from, because of how bad things were prior to that clash of champions, I'm talking about a year before year and a half before, 
you know, it wasn't like creative was under the gun. Like everybody was looking at Dusty Rhodes or looking at Ole Anderson and go, what the fuck are you doing? If we don't turn this thing around next week, your ideas are horrible. You're fired. There was not that type of a situation. Everybody knew we were rebuilding, but at the same time, we couldn't take any comfort in that. We were under the gun. Bill Shaw made it clear. This company is within a half an inch of having the plug pulled. And we all knew that. And we all knew that if they pulled the plug, we were all out of jobs. So clearly there was pressure on us. But it wasn't like if any one of us, you know, failed or if our departments failed that we felt like, oh, my God, we're, we're, we're going to get terminated. Because we weren't being singled out that way. We were being looked at as a, as a company, not as individuals. In the dark match opener, Jim Neidhart pinned Shanghai Pierce. Uh, how would you describe a Jim Neidhart Shanghai Pierce match? Yeah. <laughs> I just ran into Shanghai a couple of weeks ago. He still looks good, by the way, but it was brutal. <laughs> it was not a not a sight you want to. The rumor. I don't know, what, did Dave, what did Dave Meltzer give it? A half a star? That probably? was a dark match. He didn't rate it. The rumor in innuendo is that uh, Shanghai is a cook these days, a chef. Is that right? Yeah. Well, he was less. I didn't ask him when I saw him a couple of weeks ago, uh, what I didn't ask him what he was doing for a living then, but prior to seeing him a couple of weeks ago, the last time I saw him, he was a head chef at a very high end restaurant hotel in uh, Clearwater, Florida. Amazing. So let's talk about, um, the next match. This is the first thing we see on the clash of the champions 23, which is available on the WWE network, Ron Simmons. Beats Dick Slater here at just under four minutes with a power slam. Slater is filling in for Paul Orndorff, who is at ringside, but can't wrestle because of a torn groin muscle. It gets half a star in the observer. Uh, Dick Slater feels like, uh, a name from a different era, but as a substitute, pretty good name. And it gets a good reaction from the crowd. When you watched it back this week, what'd you think? He did get a good reaction. Now look, he, he was a throwback. To, to a large degree. And again, Dusty was the guy calling those the, the shots and Dusty and Dick Slater were, you know, they had history and, and here's what happens, you know, and, and people can criticize it or not. I don't really care at this point, but you know, when you're in a position where you have to depend on people, um, you're going to go with the people, you know, and sometimes those people may not be the absolute best you know, in, in, in their field, there may have been better choices, but I'm sure I can't put myself in Dusty's mind, obviously. And, and certainly we didn't discuss it, but the, the reason that you saw guys like, you know, Dick Slater in those positions is because Dusty knew he could trust him. Yeah. He knew what he was going to get. And sometimes knowing that you can trust somebody and knowing you're going to get is a better choice than taking a risk on somebody who might possibly be better, but might shit the bed. Or be too tough to work with. Well, so that I'm guessing that was the decision, and it wasn't that horrible. I did watch it back. The crowd reacted very well to that match. It could have been a better match. There were some things I saw, and I went, "Ooh!" <laughs> even even back then, I would make you go, "Ooh!" But they loved Ron Simmons. They loved the finish. The crowd really reacted uh, pretty well, I might add, given the fact that half of them probably got their tickets for free. Um, I didn't think it was that horrible. All right, let's get to our next match here. And, um, we're really rolling here now because we've got Lord Steven Regal taking on Marcus Alexander Bagwell. They go, uh, six minutes and 18 seconds. Meltzer would say 
Regal plays his role great. However, it's a lame role, more suitable for 1950s wrestling. Although his style is unusual in this country, Regal is proficient at what he knows. The two worked a good match, but completely messed up the finish where Regal was supposed to use the trunks to reverse a rolling reverse cradle into a similar move by himself. Half a star. So this is not too terribly long after Regal's in. Marcus Alexander Bagwell is probably by this point a nine-year rookie, nine-time rookie of the year. It feels like he was rookie of the year for about eight years. Uh, what do you remember about this match? And what did you think when you watched it back this week? I, you know, I, I remember being impressed with um, Stephen Regal. I I liked him. And I liked even at that point in my career, because I, you know, I hadn't really gotten into the creative side of things yet. I wasn't focused on, on the creative at, like I was, you know, two years later, a year and a half, two years later. But even then I, what I liked about him is, is he represented more of what as a wrestling fan, I grew up watching, you know, Billy Robinson, you know, not, not, not that Steven Rigo was really in the same category as Billy Robinson, but it was the same style. And I liked it. So I, I was a fan of Steven and, you know, Meltzer, you know, he, he, he took his, you know, prerequisite shot at, at Steven, um, who went on to become, you know, fairly successful, not only in WCW, but in WWE with, with that style. Um, so clearly, you know, once again, Dave Meltzer's intuitive powers clearly failed, but I, I remember liking Steven as a person. He was really, really um, professional. And I liked his style. Throwback as it may be or may have been in, in Dave's opinion at that time. I kind of liked it because it was different. What everybody else was trying to do more progressive things and some of them were good at it. You know, Bagwell in this match was actually pretty good. Surprisingly good for being as young as he was. Um, and, and able to work Steve's style much better than I thought he should have been able to. Um, but the match clearly, you know, Bagwell was a rookie. Um, their styles probably clashed quite a bit, which probably led to, you know, a botched finish. And clearly the finish of that match looked like an afterthought because it was botched. But, you know, looking back at it now, I like to answer your question. I like Steven. I liked his style. It represented diversity. It had that international vibe, which we were trying to get. Probably one of the reasons he was brought in, because we wanted to expand our touring into Europe. Um, another reason Davy Boy was on on the on the roster as well. You know, Europe was an important market for us, and and Steven represented our access into that market, or at least a, a part of the reason why we would, we would have access into that market. Next up is an angle. We've got Max Payne coming out to apologize and you're the stick man here. And he's saying he's sorry that he stole Johnny B bad's bad blaster and he wants to give it back to him. So when bad comes out and, uh, as Meltzer would say, even Ray Charles can see this angle coming Payne shoots the gun in Marrow's eyes and that sort of removes the opportunity for these guys to have a match as it's been advertised. Meltzer would say the angle was rushed, but it was just as well because you guys had more important things on the show. So Payne is then awarded a forfeit win over bad when Tom Zink comes out and the two go at it before eventually, uh, Payne gets some moves on him and the officials do a pull apart. Meltzer would write in the observer, probably the last we'll be seeing of Zink. Quote, the brief, whatever it was with zinc and pain was hot action. So he liked it, 
but said the angle was maybe a little hokey. You were there. What'd you think when you watched it back? It was pretty horrible. You know, and what's weird is that it's all about stealing a guy's bad blaster. Uh, anything you want to mention about the bad blaster? I, I'm starting talking about the Bischoff blaster. This angle with Max Payne and Johnny be bad. Eh, where you at on it? It it was so it was so bad. And now again, and this is hindsight 2020 speaking. Okay, R- really easy to be an expert. You know, 25 years after the fact. But I, I've learned. You know, I learned subsequent to this, or to the, to this clash. You know, you've got to have stakes for, for a match to matter, whether it's a belt, whether it's a personal issue, whether it's an opportunity, whatever it is, you've got to have a reason for two guys to get in the ring and tell a story. If there's no stakes, there's no story. If there's no story, it's just blah, right? And unfortunately, Johnny B. Bad, who is kind of a gimmick character to begin with, um, the stakes in this particular match was his bad blaster, which... I mean, it was silly. It, 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 it was just silly. And I, I, I feel bad for Mark Merrow, you know, if he ever looks back at this, you know, the fact that he tried to make this matter and anybody tried to even pretend there was a way to suggest that that bad blaster meant so much to him, it provided stakes that made this match make sense. Um, you know, it's easy to be critical and I don't mean to do it after the fact, but it was pretty weak. Well, I mean, I think in this era, he was going home to Rena Mero. So he had his own live in blue chew at the time. So he probably wasn't too sure <laughs> up about it. Uh, next up, we've got Barry Windham uh, working with two cold Scorpio for the NWA world title. These guys go 12 minutes and 53 seconds. Uh, Meltzer loved it, man. He gave it three and three quarter stars. It's always seemed kind of weird to me to see Barry Windham wearing the NWA world title. I mean, I know he's one of the best wrestlers ever. I'm not arguing that, but it does feel a little bit like second fiddle here on this show. Does it not? It does. And there was a lot of, you know, the whole NW to, to NWA or not NWA was kind of a, a big issue in the year or so leading up to this. And I, I don't know what the logic was. You know, I, I think again because WCW had its roots in the NWA, and there was such a, a good chunk of our audience still remembered the NWA, and it still had, even though it, it it obviously fell on hard times, it was still you know a brand or or, or represented a brand that still had some meaning, and particularly in a market like Roanoke uh, or, or Norfolk. In, in, in up and down the eastern seaboard. It was an important thing. And I think people thought, people meaning, you know, Bill Watts, Ole Anderson, you know, Jim Ross, Dusty, that there was a way to make that that belt mean something. Um, I never liked the idea, never really understood the idea, but that was the logic behind it, you know, to try to build on that legacy because so many of the people that we were marketing to still – you know, had a, a relationship with the NWA. What was your relationship like with, um, Barry Windham here? I mean, did you have, I mean, was he cordial? Was he unhappy that flair was back? Was he one of the boys? Was he passionate? Was he going through the motions? What do you remember? I got along with Barry really well from the get go, you know, and, and you have to understand, you know, we talked about it last week. Dusty Rhodes kind of took me under his wing. I mean, the first day I walked in. To right. WCW, 
um, and and Dusty and Barry were very close. So it was easy for me to get along with someone like like Barry Windham, and and, and he was a good guy. I mean, he was. It still is. I mean, he, he he treated me really, really well. He was laid back. Um, I, you know, I can't say enough good things about the way I got along with him. I didn't have to deal with him in terms of matches and finishes and the politics of things. I was a C-Squad announcer, and he, he treated me with a lot of respect. And, you know, we hung out. She sat at the bar with him and Dusty after the shows and had a beer or two. So, you know, I had that kind of a relationship with him. Let's talk about Scorpio. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. This is a guy who uh, allegedly had all the talent in the world, but maybe liked marijuana more than he liked his push. I don't know if that's fair or not, but that's certainly been the rap over the years. What was your experience like with Scorpio? I had a limited experience with him. Um, I worked with him more uh, as time went on. But at this point, in Clash of the Champions, I had very, very limited experience with him. Uh, he, he he was doing a lot of work in Japan, and he was a phenomenal athlete. You know, going back and looking at this, the Clash of the Champions, you know, he was way ahead of his time back then in terms of the types of things that he could do in the ring. Um, remember this is before Benoit and before a lot of the, the high flying off the top rope stuff before a lot of the Lucha stuff that we saw later on a couple years later, you know, he, he was able to do a lot of pretty impressive things. And we got to look at that. Um, he was, he sucked as a promo that was not his strong suit, but he was a great character. He had a great entrance and he could deliver in the ring. It's, uh, one of the more underrated eras for Scorpio. I think, I think a lot of people really focus on his work in ECW and think that's his best stuff. But if you get a chance, go by, go back and watch some of his WCW stuff, really good stuff. Let's talk about the next match. Uh, this is loaded here. This is not the main event. It's big Van Vader, Sid vicious and Rick rude, arguably the three top heels taking on Dustin Rhodes, sting and Davey boy Smith. They go nearly 11 minutes and Meltzer would write that considering Vader was practically paralyzed five days earlier, he was amazing here, but the match is really a one man Dustin road show. He said there was good pacing, but he did say that Sid vicious and his package overall presents the world's greatest rapping, but it's just totally empty inside. Not the great in-ring performer that you would hope he would be based on his physical presence. Of course, the finish comes with Vader doing some cheating shit. Damn that Vader. He hit Dusty's son, Dustin, with a loaded briefcase, which is really a Halliburton. And uh, then um, Rude scores the pin. So after the match, uh, Davy Boy Smith gets uh, powerbombed. And then Sting gets the briefcase and runs the heels off. Three stars. The bad guys win, but the good guys get their heat back. It's a pretty fun match, but it is sort of a, an opportunity to showcase Dustin more than anybody else. Is that because Dusty's booking and is there any sort of, uh, is there any heat in this era with the push that Dustin's getting because his dad is the booker? I don't think there was certainly nothing that I heard about, you know, Dustin held his own. Dustin worked hard. Dustin had talent and there's always, I'm sure there were people who bitched and moaned about it because that's what happens when the Booker's son is getting featured or getting any kind of a push. But I think 
from what I remember and the way I remember it, and maybe I'm looking at it through, you know, a perspective that I choose to because of the way I felt about Dusty and the way I feel about Dustin, quite frankly, um, Dustin worked for it. And I don't think anybody thought he was just getting a push because he was Dusty's son. Um, Dustin worked hard for it and had an amazing amount of talent even back then. Let's talk about the main event. This is what we're here for. They've been building it for quite a while. It's Brian Pillman and Steve Austin, the Hollywood blondes and the NWA and WCW tag team titles are on the line and their opponents are Arn Anderson and the returning Ric Flair. This is Rick's first match back with WCW after his run with the WWF. As we said, he's been doing the flair for the gold segments, but this is the first in ring competition we're going to see. Meltzer would write the initial response to flair was ruined by them playing the wrong music and subsequent nights at house shows. They played 2001 and flair received an enormous pop. It was clear that those who were there largely came to see flair as his response was far greater than anyone else on the show. Of course, then again, most of those who came didn't pay before we keep going. I want you to respond to that. Do you remember the music snafu and is that sort of something that's on your watch. That's on me. <laughs> that was my bad. Um, I mean, I wasn't cueing the music, I right? Wasn't working in the truck, but that was under my watch as the executive producer. And yes, I do remember it. Um, and it sucked, especially you know going back and watching it. You know, today it was like, oh my god. And it, what's what made it worse was not only was it the wrong music, but the music was so similar to the music that Austin and, and Pillman had when they came out that I had to listen to it twice to make sure it wasn't right. It, I mean, it wasn't the same music, but it might as well have been, um, which made it even worse. And yeah, that was a really bad, that was a, that was a bad mistake. Really bad. So the bad guys, I guess you could call them that. I mean, Flair's really a baby face here. I guess they're the good guys. Rick Flair gets, uh, the first pin. And then eventually, instead of this is a two out of three falls, there is a disqualification that goes down because Wyndham interferes here and Paul Roma comes in for the save. And after the match, as Wyndham was doing an interview, Flair then attacks him and they go off the air, pulling the two apart. Now, this is pretty fun because Wyndham used to be a horseman, but now he's the world champion. And they've been setting this up that Flair wants his old belt back and Flair, according to the observer, seemed uncomfortable in spots working as a babyface because he's so used to working as a heel, but he still likes the match. He gives it four stars and it's a big deal because we've got Michael Buffer here doing the introductions and it's Flair's return to WCW. So the presentation is awesome. You probably haven't seen this in a long time, Eric, and we're right here on the 25 year anniversary. what did you think? What did I think then or what do I think now? Either, both. You know, looking looking at it now, I didn't like the finish. Um, I understand it, you know, in hindsight, I can I can imagine probably pretty accurately what was going through Dusty's mind when he laid this thing out. Um but it wasn't Again, I'm only hesitating because I hate this hindsight 2020 shit. It's just not fair to anybody. So with without any further disclaimers, 
Um, it, it could have been done so much better and achieved probably a better outcome. It was a rushed kind of cluster finish. I think it's, you know, Meltzer's perspective was probably on the money in that Rick didn't like being a baby face. And I learned that subsequently, you know, in, in the years to come, Rick was really uncomfortable being a baby face. He never liked it. Uh, at least working with me, I should say, I don't know what he was like before, but it, he was, Rick was always more comfortable as the heel. He just felt like he was in control. He had, he, he had just more confidence as a heel. And I'm sure, like I said, Meltzer was, his perception was probably right. You know, the Hollywood blondes are arguably one of the hottest acts in the promotion coming into this, certainly the hottest tag team, maybe in the world. And they're not even allowed to win a fall here. You know, flair gets the first fall and then there's a DQ. What would have been the harm? I know you hate the hindsight 2020 shit, but after you had this great buildup with all these segments on the flair for the gold, where they're saying Arn's a statue and he hadn't missed too many buffets and Rick needs to calm down before he blows the pacemaker and they even do like a flair for the old where they have him in a wig. And I mean, it's just really, really good stuff that people still talk about to this day and they don't even get a fall here. Is that politics or was it trying to tell a story? I know you're not involved in the creative at the time. I just want your opinion. I think it was trying to tell a story. I don't think there was any politics. I mean, everybody was high on Pillman in Austin. I know that it started out a little rough because I don't think, you know, Either one of them really were excited about working together in the beginning, but it clicked and everybody knew that it clicked. So there was no politics involved. I think it was just, look, WCW was never good at finishes, period, end of conversation. As much as I, you know, love Dusty and uh, I can't talk enough about, you know, some of the vision he had and his, his creativity, finishes were not his forte. And, and we all know that. Um, and finishes, unfortunately, are, are what people remember. And it, it, it's like watching a movie. You know, if, if 87 minutes of a movie is fucking great, but the last three minutes of it blow, people are only going to remember the last three minutes. And I think this is one of those cases where the finish could have been so much better. But I, for, for whatever reason, and I, I can't put myself in anybody's head, you know, back then, but I'm, I'm, I'm certain it wasn't politics because everybody was high on everybody that was involved. Obviously everybody was excited about Rick being back. There was no politics there. Everybody was excited about Barry Wyndham. When I say excited, everybody had respect for Barry. There was no issue there. Um, I think everybody was pretty convinced that the Ric Flair versus Barry, I want my old belt back was a good idea. And I, and I can see why it makes sense on paper, except for the fact that Rick had to be a baby face. Uh, and I know everybody was high on Austin and Pillman. So I just don't think it was politics. All right, Eric, let's go to uh, the end of the show here and put a bow on this deal. Let's compare notes. The wrestling observer reader poll had this at 71.4% thumbs up. 9.6% thumbs in the middle and 18.6% thumbs down. You watched this for the first time in probably 25 years this week. what did you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Oh, 
I guess if I have to think about it, it's too, it's it's pretty apparent. I, I, I it's hard for me to give it a thumbs up because of here here's my here's my hindsight twenty twenty bitch. If they knew Paul Orndorff wasn't going to be able to wrestle, which you know that happens, shit happens, injuries happen. Um, why would they have the kind of angle they had with Johnny B. Bad and Max Payne? You know, they were supposed to have a match. They didn't. Johnny got hurt because of that. You know, I just, I, I would have done that differently. I would have come up with a better way to do that uh, under the circumstances. So that, that bothered me. Because um, you're, you're, you're average, you know, and even though, you know, the Johnny B. Bad, Max Payne match wasn't a real important thing, at the same time, you've advertised it. Right. And right. now there's two matches, you know, within, you know, the first hour of the show that were advertised that you're not going to have. So that bothers me a little bit. That could have been done better, creatively speaking. Um, and the finishes, you know, the Bagwell finish, you know, with Rigo was lame. And I know it was a botched finish, but it shouldn't have been. It should have been a much, much better finish that would have probably positioned both of those guys a lot better, you know, going forward from that time. So th- that one bothered me a little bit. And then, you know, the, the six-man, that didn't bother you know, The finishing that didn't bother me because to me, six-man matches are clusterfucks anyway. They're very rarely great matches, in my opinion. And part of that is because I just don't like them. There's just too much stuff going on, and it's too hard to keep track of the stuff and to get emotionally invested in whatever the stakes are supposed to be because there's just too much to absorb as, as a fan, in my opinion, for me. So I didn't really like that as good as it was, and it was good for what it was. I didn't like it. Um, and clearly the finish in the main event could have been much, much better, in my opinion. So you're going thumbs down? I'm going thumbs in the middle, but barely. I'm going thumbs in the middle, but barely as well. We'll see you next week with Great American Bash. And uh, I can't wait to find out what uh, Mrs. Bischoff has to say about Bluetooth. I can't believe that's a real sentence. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.